This is the show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is the show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Yesterday, we celebrated the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, uh, and I love this feast. I love the imagery that surrounds it. Um, I have a, a a medal of the Sacred Heart that I carry with me, and um, it's one of those that I just love to continue to plumb the depths of. These titles that, that we celebrate Christ under— um, throughout the year, that they're important because they teach us something unique, each one revealing a different aspect of the character of God and of the love of Christ. Uh, there's a, a, a litany of the, to the Sacred Heart that was approved back in 1899 by Pope Leo XIII, and the titles that come forward in this litany are just lovely. They remind us of these different aspects of who Christ is and how his heart is directed toward us. And so we recognize, acknowledge, and pray to, asking for mercy to the heart of Jesus, Son of the Eternal Father, formed by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, substantially united to the Word of God. It's the heart of Jesus of infinite majesty and sacred temple of God and tabernacle of the Most High, where we acknowledge his divinity and his incarnation. But then there are these titles that we also, even as we are praying, we're also asking that we be made into his image uh, by his mercy. So heart of Jesus, burning furnace of charity, abode of justice and love, full of goodness and love, abyss of all virtues, right? This is something that we also should aspire to, even as we're calling out to him for mercy. Well, there's so much more to this. Uh, We're going to put a link to this litany up on social media. If you've never seen it, go ahead and pray through this. It's just such a rich experience. But today we're talking about something a little bit different, kind of Sacred Heart, because Sacred Heart College in in Ontario, Canada, is hosting an online certificate course on the Theology of the Body with Sister Helena Burns. And I am so very excited about this. This came across, uh, got, I received it in an email, uh, and I have to tell you, I'm really kind of stoked about it. I have followed Sister Helena since I first became Catholic back in 2011. Uh, I've followed her blog for a very long time. Uh, I love the URL of the blog because Sister Helena Burns blogs at hellburns.com. That's right. Hellburns.com. You can find all of her uh, her thoughts and her blogs and more information about this certificate course at Sacred Heart College in Ontario. Sister Helena, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you, uh, on your biography, I love this, uh, you are a, a Canadian USA dual citizen, uh, and then there's a colon, and it says, an international woman of mystery. Right. So, right. so here you are, you're, you're living at the mother house in, uh, in Boston. Um, but you travel around the world talking about, uh, media literacy, theology of the body, uh, giving courses to youth and adults all over the U S and Canada. Thus, the international woman of mystery, both, both ontologically and in your, in your active ministry. Um, talk a little bit about uh, about how these interests come together in your vocation and your charism as the daughter of St. Paul. Wow. Okay. So 
I've always loved the arts, you know, and I've always been good at writing and, you know, vociferous reader since I was, you know, before I could go to kindergarten, my dad taught us how to read. He got me my first bookcase when I was five years old. Mm -hmm. And so I always told him, dad, it's your fault. I became a daughter of St. Paul because (laughs) he had such a great love for books that he passed on to us. And, you know, when I was discerning my vocation, I, I was really open. I wanted to do whatever the Lord wanted me to do. So I told the Lord, I'll work with old people. I'll be a nurse. I'll do with, you know, dying cancer patients, the Hawthorne Dominicans, you know, I'll, whatever you want me, Mother Teresa's sisters, they had a big special place in my heart, even though I had never met one, but I loved, loved Mother Teresa. She was alive when I was alive. And, um, but, but it was a toss up between Mother Teresa's sisters doing the corporal works of mercy, taking care of the body or being a daughter of St. Paul because our mission is very spiritual. We do the spiritual works of mercy, really, you know, focused on the soul. So at a certain point, the Lord told me in prayer, why do you think I gave you all these artsy fartsy gifts? He didn't say fartsy though. I didn't, I'm <laughs> <just me> paraphrasing. <laughs> so he said, I want you to use them. I'm not going to ask you to do something. Like I, I kind of fainted at the sight of blood. I could never have been a nurse, <laughs> but I was like, I was open and willing, right? So he said, no, I want you to use those gifts that you have of, um, cause we work with media daughters of St. Paul, use the media, any form of media like this, this wonderful mm-hmm. Catholic radio, yay. Um, to spread God's word, um, his love, let people know that he's real, let people know that he's close to them, um, help them to learn more about him, to know him is to love him, right? Eternal life is this to know the one whom he sent. So I entered the daughters. And it was a no-brainer to get my master's in media literacy education because our founder, Blessed James Alberione, used to tell us, you are a teaching institute, mm-hmm. but you teach through the media. So he wanted us, we, we um, honor Jesus, the teacher, the divine master, and he wanted us to think of ourselves as teachers, but we teach through the media. And you have that icon so, there on the door behind you of, of Christ, the teacher. No, no one else can see it, but I'm, I'm relaying that to them over the radio. Yes. So um, we call him the divine master. He's our devotion. Jesus, the divine master, way, truth, and life. Mm-hmm. Because he corresponds to the three um, faculties of the human person, our, our mind, our will, and our heart. Jesus is the truth for our mind, the way for our will, and the life for our heart. So the theology of the body came into my life in kind of a personal way, but also not a personal way. Because the Daughters of St. Paul printed the first edition of yeah. Theology of the Body. We took it right from Lisservatore Romano. When John Paul II was alive, we took everything he ever dreamt or sneezed or, you know, he, all of his travels. We had um, a book for each country he went to or, or series of countries, clusters of countries. And then we did like uh, collections of his talks on pro-life, his talks, um, his all his encyclicals. And when his Theology of the Body came out, it was four little books to start with. And then we put it into one volume and I was proofreading at the time. And I remember learning three things from his theology of the body. Now I hadn't studied theology yet. I was a novice. Um, I hadn't studied philosophy yet. I didn't know the Bible that well, but I could still plow through his, his theology of the body. And I remember Three things came to me. First of all, that this was very original. I knew that John Paul II, uh, that this was something unlike anything I had ever heard. 
and was answering my questions on some very deep levels. Number two, he he convinced me that sex was spiritual. Hmm. This huge spiritual component to sexuality, not just a bodily thing, you know. Um, that was that was huge for me. This this immense spiritual component. And then one of his footnotes, he said. You in the West, not we in the West, because <laughs> he's like kind of in the East Poland, you know, kind of right. on the border there. He said, you in the West have a hard time with symbols. You don't understand symbols and signs. And so you don't really understand the sacraments either because you say it's just a symbol. And I mean, theology of the body is all about the sacramentality of our bodies. And so that burrowed into my brain too, when he was telling us, you don't get it, you're, you're struggling. And so you don't understand icons, how icons are revealing something real. We don't stop at the icon. That would be idol worship. Right. <laughs> you know, we go through the icon to the heavenly realities. And our bodies are icons like that. You don't stop at the body and worship the body. Um, you go through the body to God, the reality of God, whose image we're made in. Um, and so I just kind of took those away. And I never really got into theology of the body very much after that. And we started printing more and more. We had a whole line, Theology of the Body line. We still do. Uh, Pauline Books and Media is our publishing house. And in the 90s, we started to hear, yeah, I'm old. I'm old. I entered at three. I <laughs> uh, entered the time I was three years old. Um, in the 90s, we started hearing about this man, Christopher West, mm -hmm. who was teaching Theology of the Body. He had broken it down and people were getting really, really excited about it. And we were selling lots of the books, you know, and but we weren't really partaking of it because we thought it was for pre-Cana. Right. We thought it was for marriage prep. We thought it was for teen chastity talks. We thought it was for natural family planning. And that was about it, yeah. right? For people who are going to be sexually active, la, la, la. And, but here's the thing. My background, a lot of people know this, is radical feminism. So before I entered the convent, I was, it's all I knew. I went to public schools. And I just really imbibed the radical feminist narrative, which was controlling the narrative in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And now it's, you know, LGBTQ and gender um, androgyny and gender fluidity is controlling the narrative. But back in those days when I was growing up, it was the radical feminist um, narrative. And so that was the only inner framework framework I had to work from that the body doesn't mean anything. So it doesn't matter whether you have a, a woman's body or a man's body. And of course that played right into the gender activism and gender ideology. Um, so, cause if that's true, then, Hey, it's a free for all. Right. Right. So, and I, I really thought, you know, women had the short end of the stick, right? We had monthly cycles. We had get pregnant for nine months. <laughs> we had the pain and peril of childbirth. Uh, breastfeeding, nurturing small children, which we were taught by the radical feminists, tie you down. You know, babies are the worst, right? <laughs> so, so I entered the convent with all of this, with having no other framework to work from. And I kind of kept my mouth shut because I, I entered a purposely in an orthodox traditional order of sisters because I came to believe uh, that the Catholic church is, is right and it's Jesus's church. So I knew that I had to start unpacking what that meant. And I remember telling Jesus, 
um, he spoke to me from the Blessed Sacrament. That's the, the reason I'm Catholic. Besides being baptized Catholic by my parents, I was ready to chuck it all. Um, but then he spoke to me from the Blessed Sacrament. So I said, okay, then this must be his church. And I have to now do what St. Anselm called faith-seeking understanding. Yeah, I have to, um, instead of saying, I'll believe it when I understand it, when are we ever going to understand anything completely? I will rather believe and seek to, to deepen my understanding, but nothing was helping me. When I entered the convent, I was studying scripture, asceticism, spirituality, church history, philosophy, theology. Nothing helped. The, the more I studied, the, the less I felt like I was getting answers until theology of the body. Mm-hmm. So I had, um, I started to hear a lot of things. I mean, Christopher West was still going strong. And then there was some controversy surrounding him springing up. And I was like, I don't want to hear it from secondhand. I want to go hear him myself. I'm going to yeah. make my own judgment call. So I went to see him in Indiana for a weekend and like it totally changed my life but before that right before that i um had seen father loya a byzantine priest who's a wonderful theology of the body guy talk and that was my first real theology of the body breakthrough and my mind was blown we're talking today with sister helena burns and sister i have a, a similar story like that my first encounter with the theology of the body. We were still Protestant, and my wife had just now come back from a training where uh, she was learning to teach a method of natural family planning. Um, And that's a long story in and of itself. But she came back from this training, and she brought back the uh, the man and woman, he he created them, Theology of the Body, and uh, The Good News About Sex and Marriage by Christopher West. And and I read those... um, Christopher West was definitely easier to get through than than the other, just because of the way that that uh, that Pope John Paul II frames things. Uh, it takes some intentionality and some uh, some some fortitude to keep going through that. Um, but I got to the end of this, and I'm like, this this was the final straw that said, no, we really have to become Catholic because there is nothing else that really meets this that that will serve. And I really what this did as I as I read it, and I'm sure that you can attest to this as well, is it points out the latent Gnosticism that that just completely saturates our culture. The idea uh, on the one hand in the church that I was growing up in, uh, in the Protestant church I was growing up in, that well the body is is really a bad thing and it's a burden to us, but we have to work to keep it pure and grow in our spiritual life so that eventually we can reach heaven. And the hedonism on the other side that says, really, um, the body is the way to get to all the spiritual feelings and emotions, and so we should just give the body whatever it wants. And it was in here in the theology of the body to look at this body-soul integration that says, you aren't your soul with a body, neither are you your body with a soul, you are your body and soul together. Uh, and that pulled it out of the, for me, pulled it out of the framework of masculinity is this set of behaviors and femininity is this set of behaviors and said, masculinity is ontological to me as a man and the things that I do are masculine because I do them, not because the activity is inherently masculine or feminine. And that was kind of a, um, maybe everyone else already knows this, but I don't think so. I know that I certainly didn't. 
um, because it changes the even the talk on the complementarity of the sexes away from, well, this is your behavior and activity and this is mine, and into, hey, let's just live who we are as people and let let that just kind of flow naturally from the source of who we are. Yes, absolutely. And, um, and yet there are certain behaviors that do, and I use those exact same words, flow naturally from the body of a man or a woman, um, from our genetic makeup, from the fact that little baby boys have a testosterone wash in the womb. Mm -hmm. And so newborns, when they do studies on them, they re newborn little girls react very differently and interact very differently um, than little newborn baby boys. But we do not want to get into stereotypes right. or glass ceilings or, you know, putting people in a box and limiting them and this and that. But there are um, like male characteristics and female in a very broad general way. Now, some women are very good at STEM, even though most men's brains, there's the masculine brain, the feminine brain, um, works more analytically, a male brain, for example. Um, but if a woman has a very analytical mind, that doesn't make her less feminine and more masculine, right? Um, and we have to look at things like empathy. Like we tend to um, sometimes feminize certain virtues, like um, empathy. Well, no, that's a human virtue. Women are going to do it one way in general, and men are going to do it another way. Men may not cry as much as women. Like, and, and there's the, the cultural conditioning too. You know, boys yeah. don't cry and all of that. But um, men have different ways they express their love. You know, like a, a guy might do it by doing things for you. You know, like I, I did a whole thing on Instagram one time. Like, what do you think the masculine genius is? Because we hear a lot about the feminine genius because John Paul II talked about that. He didn't, he didn't say much about the masculine genius. So there's actually a lot of women in the church right now doing the masculine genius. So, Well, and I think and, that's that's really the better place for it to happen because otherwise there, there can be uh, this lionization of, of maybe even our own faults. It's nice to have right, right. to have someone else take on that work. Right, and how we see you, our counterpart. So here we had a man, John Paul II, looking at women, um, sort of telling us what our genius is, like in, a, in an admiring way, right? Our, our good qualities. Um, so so we're looking, so for example, and it was fascinating because, and I, I found this to be true in my own life, like my brother expresses his love by, you know, every Saturday he cleans his wife's car out and, and washes it and he does the landscaping and la, 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 la. Now that, again, that's not to say that a woman can't wash a car or maybe she likes to landscape, but there's certain things that men are good at because they're strong. They have more physical strength. So for example, construction workers, how many women can carry what those guys carry? How many women even want to be construction workers? Very few. So it's okay to have a division of labor and let people do what they're good at or what their bodies are outfitted for. So where Father Thomas Loya, the Byzantine priest, blew my mind was he's, he's an artist as well. He was a commercial artist. Now he does icons after he became a priest and he was sketching at the front of the room, um, these angular lines. And then he said, what am I, what am I creating here? And it turned into be the torso of a man. And then he said, very simply, the design of something tells you its purpose, what it's made for and what it does best. Then he starts drawing circles. Oh, something softer, rounder, um, what is it? Oh, it's a woman's body. Um, the design tells of something tells you what it's good at, what its purpose is, what its meaning meaning is. 
and he just left it there. And he didn't talk about fertility, female fertility, which as a radical feminist, I was like, I was like, this is what we want to hear just for once. Women in themselves, apart from our fertility, which is a false dichotomy, mm-hmm. just we never hear about men and their fertility as one thing. Right. You know, we don't instantly see a man and say, oh, a dad. Oh, a dad. He has, he has a possibility to be a dad. But women are so connected, you know, with our sexuality that it's like, oh, women are mothers, 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 mothers. And, and women really, a lot of women really object to that, right? As I did um, as a radical feminist. And I knew that, I knew that it's, now I know that it's really our glory. Our fertility is our glory to be able to have another image of God, right? Um, and not just any image of God, it's partly me, right? It's partly in my image too. So um, when he said that, it so many lights went on and bells started ringing because I was going to be an ornithologist. You know, I love nature, conservation, the environment. That was my whole life. I kind of actually thought people, uh, animals were more important than people for a long time as well because they're innocent and pure and they don't mess up creation. Um, and I thought, wait a minute, I believe in creation. I believe in science. I believe in biology big time. Why didn't I ever see myself mm-hmm. and the design of my body as part of nature, part of creation? Um, and, and that just made me see, oh, oh, like I am my body and it's good. And it's okay to um, experience life differently from a man. Because I had suppressed all my feminine voices. I had them and my intuitions and my wisdom because I was told, by men and by the radical feminists around me that women's ways of doing things and problem solving and thinking and interacting are weak, emotional, as though emotions were a bad thing, irrational, uh, silly, uh, inferior, right? So I thought, I don't want to be that. I can think like a man. I can act like a man. I can do things like a man if that's what's superior, which is, it's an inherent, um, it's a false admission of inferiority when a woman says I can be as good as a man. Well, it, it let's, um, this is a, a story that we all know, uh, the story of, of David and Goliath, right? We know that David came and he, he got the five smooth stones and he w- was able to win the victory for, uh, for the people of Israel. And he did it by fighting in his own way and not by fighting in the way that was expected of him. But one of the things we don't often look at, and I think that this relates to what you're talking about is, um, the only reason David was put in that position is because the king agreed to fight by someone else's rules, right? He went ahead and said, yeah, we'll do the champion kind of battle, which you don't see prior to that in the battles of the people of Israel. And so here, even at the, at the get-go of that, uh, that whole scenario, it was in the agreeing to behave according to someone else's rules uh, that got them into trouble and brought them into fear in the first place. And wanting to have a king and not have God as their king alone. No, we want a human king. We want to be like the other nations, right? Yeah. yeah. When God always has a superior plan. And um, yeah, so that was that was the beginning of my, and I, I very much lived a Gnostic life. You know, um, I was very separated from my body. I also had autoimmune diseases. So uh, my body was a source of pain and discomfort and, you know, all the inconvenience quote unquote coming that comes with being a woman. Um, and, and it was actually dialed back before rat, um, before father Thomas Loya, um, 
Ratzinger, when he was still head of the CDF, then, then Pope Benedict, said, we are our bodies. We don't have bodies. We are our bodies. I remember reading that in Catholic World Report and knowing that he was right just because he was Ratzinger. And, <laughs> and really, really hating that. And but but I had to sit with that for like two years. I think I was in my late 20s. And I remember thinking, what? What? No, no, this can't be. Like I had this idea of like I was a soul trapped in a body. So the soul was the real true self really me. And it was the good and holy part of me. And my body is this sort of earthly, lowly part of me that's always dragging me down. And that he was saying, no, you're, they're equal. You know, your body's equally good, equally sacred, equally human, equally you. And I, and I, I, I came around to accepting that. And I don't know what I did with the resurrection of the body. I think I swept that under the rug and we don't emphasize that at all in our faith. You right. know, it's just kind of, and even the wording in the creeds is a little like squishy. It's kind of like, I look forward to the resurrection of the body. Like, not like my body. If we said, I look forward to the resurrection of my body yeah. or um, something like that. I, I, we just, we just buried two of our sisters here at the, at the mother house. And I was listening to the, the funeral liturgy and it said, until our lowly bodies are transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ's body. It's like very explicit. Yeah. But you have to go to funeral liturgy. So I always start my theology of the body teaching with the resurrection of the body. Like what is the glorious destiny of the human body? And so many Christians and Catholics, they're shocked to hear that they're getting their bodies back. Yeah, you mean, because uh, gro growing up, I'd always heard, you know, we're going to get our glorified bodies. But I always kind of pictured that in my head as like, oh, well, God's got a new body suit up there that I'm going to get, that he's going to give me when I come through the gates, and that's going to be mine. And this whole picture of, oh, wow, I actually have to watch my weight because this is the one <laughs> I'm getting back. I have to take care of this physical frame because this is, the, this is what he has to work with, right? I've asked seventh graders after we do that. And then I say, so we, we do a whole little process. It's, and it was so much fun because we talk about the superpowers that the four characteristics of the glorified body, everything Jesus did after the resurrection on earth is what we'll be able to do. Walk through doors, you know, the agility, the um, impassibility, no longer able to suffer or decay, all of that great stuff, the subtlety, the radiance, all of that. And um, I say to the seventh graders, so does that make a difference? in how you're going to live your life now and think about your body and treat your body and the bodies of others. And they're like, heck yeah. yeah. <laughs> it makes a huge difference. Unless you're just sort of tolerating your body and dragging it around and you, you just see it as a thing, um, which is terrible because then it becomes a possession. It has no meaning. You can do whatever you want with it because it's not you. We're talking today with Sister Helena Raphael Burns. She's the daughter of St. Paul. And there's so much more to this conversation right after this. You can find out more about her, including this online course that's happening at Sacred Heart College out of Ontario, but it's happening online. You can find out more about it by going to hellburns.com. I just love that, that blog uh, URL. Uh, join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter the handle's at Outside the Walls. And talk to me about your first experience with Theology of the Body. Don't go anywhere. There's much more right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L., and we're talking today with Sister Helena Burns. She's the daughter of St. Paul, currently living in Boston at the Mother House there. If you don't know about the Daughters of St. Paul, oh my goodness, you are missing out. Every year, uh, we we populate our house with their books. The, the, recently, we did the uh, the Kickstarter for the, the Lives of the Saints uh, in Cello and Terra. It's fantastic. Uh, Sister Teresa Alethea has a number of books on the Memento Mori, uh, journals and, and de, uh, devotionals and more. Uh, and then every year, we we do a threefold Christmas, Sister Helena. Uh, we give our kids three presents, uh, a gold, a frankincense, and a myrrh. They get a present that's a toy because we have eight kids. So, you know, it's going to be expensive no matter what. We get a, a present that's a toy uh, that they want to play with or a, a gadget. We get a present that's for the body, right? Something to wear or maybe lessons or maybe a skateboard, you know, something that they can be active with. And then something for the spirit, right? That, that frankincense. And the frankincense present is almost without question a Daughter of St. Paul book. Either a theology of the body for toddlers, yes, it exists and it's fantastic, uh, or uh, some of the biographies for the lives of the saints. There's so much, so many wonderful resources. Uh, you need to go to pauline.org and take a look at what they have to offer. But today we're talking about the Theology of the Body summer course being put on by Sacred Heart College in Ontario, Canada. Uh, and they have a certificate course uh, that you can also audit for a cheaper price and less homework led by Sister Helena Burns. Sister, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So um, one of the things that I've noticed here in the midst of this pandemic is we've had this explosion of opportunity, right? We can uh, we can have video conferences. We can meet with, with people all over the world without traveling. We can go and attend these kinds of courses. But something still feels off to us. And, and I've watched it in my children. I know that I've experienced it myself, but I've watched it in my children as even despite these other activities, there's something fundamental about their bodily experience of life that's missing. Uh, and so to that, I want to maybe explore a little bit the reason we have the theology of the body, which is not just a theology about sex, everyone. This is a, a theology about personhood and who we are. You mentioned at the beginning of uh, of our talk that when you first read Theology of the Body, it came across as something unique and new. What I want to explore is what is it about our society now that has necessitated this expression of, of anthropology, of, of personhood, uh, in a way that wasn't necessary throughout the centuries before uh, to, to relay the truth of who we are as creations of God, made in his image and endowed with incomparable dignity? That's a great question. And um, of course, the Judeo-Christian view of the human person is the highest because it, it's based on scripture, that we're made in the image of God, that we have an eternal destiny, that we are precious, thou shalt not kill. You know, we believe in these the commandments of God about how humans should treat one another. Um, and so in the Renaissance, you know, this is after Jesus, of course, uh, the high Renaissance had this also very um, elevated view of the human person. But then we kind of lost it, right, with Darwin. When Darwin came along and we thought, oh, we're just a um, blind evolution. 
you know, red in tooth and claw. And we started to apply that to human beings um, and, and then social Darwinism and all of that, um, as well as the scientific revolution, which said, oh, we don't need God anymore because we can explain everything now. It isn't fairies, you know, <laughs> doing doing X, Y, and Z. We can explain it now. We know about cells. We know about this and that. And we can look through our telescopes and we haven't seen God in our microscopes or telescopes yet. So he doesn't exist. As though the only thing God was there to do is explain how everything works. Right. And so, so there was this, like from different fronts, there was this idea of like, we don't need God anymore. And of course, these science can't, we love science. It's great. It, it shows us how God made everything, but it doesn't tell us um, how to behave well on this earth, where we're going, how we got here, or even how everything got here. And, and just to so, that point, the Daughters of St. Paul recently did a collection, a book about fantastic scientists with Word on Fire Institute. Uh, it's it's beautiful, and I look forward to getting my hands on a copy. Brilliant. It's just called Brilliant. 25 Catholic scientists through history who were believers and gave us some of our biggest um, discoveries. And that's just to point to the fact that we don't hate science at all. It's well, when, all. when science all. begins to try and answer questions of anthropology and being that it, that it can get us into a little bit of trouble. And it's not science itself, it's scientists who are making that choice, you know, and yet there's so many believing scientists, even in our own day and age. So John Paul II, you know, he was born, I believe, in 1920, and he witnessed, I mean, he lived some very harsh realities. His whole family died by the time he was 22, and he lived through World War One, World War II, or, or actually the tail end of World War One, and he lived in and occupied Poland, first under the horrors of the Nazis and then, then under the horrors of the communists. So he saw the trashing of human dignity under these atheistic philosophies, right? Um, that, that didn't elevate the human person, actually trashed the human person, unless you were among the 1% of elite, right? Or, or the right race or, or whatever, you subscribe to the right ideology, no freedom of thought, no freedom of religion, no freedom of anything. So he called his theology of the body an adequate anthropology. He said, we've been working off of these inadequate and some really horrific, you can't even call them anthropologies. So he wasn't just answering the sexual revolution when he wrote Theology of the Body. He was answering these terrible philosophies and views of the human person. And others like Max Scheller and um Immanuel Kant, he took the good in their philosophies and he polished them up. He shined them up and showed what they were lacking to have an even better and fuller view of the human person. So I always say, why John Paul II? Why was he given this amazing and incredible theology of the body? Why did it come from him? Did it have to come from him? Was he just like Elvis, <laughs> you know, the right person, a very talented individual in yeah. the right place at the right time, and the world was ready for rock and roll? Yes. <laughs> yes. Like we, we desperately, desperately needed theology of the body when John Paul II came along. So he was a, an Aristotelian Thomist. So people will say, oh, he was a phenomenologist. Like, no, he, he, he said to, to quell all the philosophers who were fighting over him, the phenomenologists were claiming him and the Thomists were claiming him. He said, I use both. Yeah. Phenomenology is more like a method. And he definitely used that. But he grounded himself in Aristotelian Thomism. There's even a book uh, by a Dominican 
It's called Aquinas and the Theology of the Body. And it's about John Paul II and theology of the body, how he really does take it from a Thomistic point of view. But he builds on it and he builds on, it's really a, a Bible study. So yeah. he goes through the entire Bible in order, almost every book of the Bible, starting with Genesis, ending with Revelation, and examines how is what is God saying about the human body in the Bible. I mean, only John Paul II could have thought of that. What a genius, right? And well, and, and this is this is not something that he sat down and just wrote, although the, the seeds of it are there throughout his writing even before this, with love and responsibility and with a number of other works that he's done. But these were his his Wednesday audiences where he would get uh, in front of people and have these little catechetical lessons uh, that spanned years before they were compiled by the, the intrepid daughters of St. Paul and put into a book. Yes, and so people wonder how he could have, the, the book before Theology of the Body was called Love and Responsibility, which you mentioned, and that came out in the late 50s in Poland, and people thought he must have been clairvoyant or something because he's addressing the sexual revolution, but they were having their own little sexual revolution in Poland under the Marxists, because people don't know this, but part of Marxism is to make people dissolute, to get them into um, perversions and loose sexual morals because when you can get people addicted to pleasure of any kind they become very malleable you can manipulate people like that you just give them what they want or they're not paying attention to what's happening to their rights and freedoms while they're you know seeking all these pleasures out non-stop and that's their number one goal so he was answering this sexual revolution that was going on in poland uh instigated by the marxists um and so uh, it came out in English in 1960, the same year that The Pill came out. Very yeah. interesting. And it's it's such a great read. If you want to really, if you like philosophy better than theology, and you've already tried to read Theology of the Body and it's too tough, read Love and Responsibility. It's a much easier read. And he addresses Freud. Like, what does Freud say about sex? What does um, Nietzsche say about sex? Like, so he he's, he's dialoguing with the current ideas Um how do we, what do we do with our sexual urges? What is the nature of human love? And what does it require of us? If we're human, and this is what it means to be human, then what does human love require of us? Not to, what do we require of human love? Right. You know, what do I, what do I want it to be? It's no, it is what it is. So what is the nature of human love? And he goes through the seven stages to true love. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. He goes through your vocation. He goes through spiritual motherhood, spiritual fatherhood, it's, it's, it's packed and it's not terribly religious. It's more of a psychological, philosophical book, really. So it's been a gateway drug for a lot of people <laughs> <laughs> into, into theology of the body and reading John Paul too. Well, Sister Helena, one of the things you mentioned is that, uh, that Pope John Paul II called this, St. Pope John Paul II called this an adequate anthropology. One of the things that that should point us to is and of course this is also mentioned in the course description is that theology of the body is not a course to its own end it's not a topic that we study for the sake of studying it rather it's a foundation and a framework through which we view all other things uh, and so this is really a, a way that we can begin to make sense of our world from a different and and more secure starting place right and people have even said that he turned not only theology on its head, or rather right side up. He's also turned the world of philosophy, including secular philosophy, on, on its head. Because what happened back in the 1500s 
was religion went all spiritual. Luther said there are no sacraments, there's no visible priesthood, um, faith alone, which is spiritual, grace alone, which is spiritual, scripture alone, which is spiritual, the word of God, um, and thus made religion all spiritual. Science went all physical, and that's really what it's supposed to be anyway, um, and not supposed to make pronouncements about whether there's a God or not, or a soul or not, or whatever. Um, and then philosophy went all spiritual with Descartes, saying, I think, therefore I am. And, and that the real world is whatever's going on inside your head. And, and it's immaterial, right? Rather than starting with, and theology got all tripping out on the spiritual too. So the only thing that was actually being physical anymore was science, but at the same time, making dictates about <laughs> the spiritual world negating it. It's like, no, 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 that's not your field. You're not supposed to talk about that. You're supposed to deal with physical, empirical knowledge, you know, positivistic knowledge there and, and not make statements about anything else because that's not the discipline of science. And so even in the Catholic church, we kind of followed sometimes Protestantism in that um, spiritualistic thinking. I mean, I grew up, it was all spiritual. I hated religious education. I went to public school. We had CCD, religious ed for the public school kids. And it was all like fairy tales and like weird stuff. Like just believe us because we're telling you nothing was grounded. Nothing was verifiable. Um, we paid lip service to creation by saying God made the world the end. Right. That, like that's it. And then you can do whatever you want with it. Yeah, be a good steward. It's like, no, no, no. We're supposed to act as God would act toward God's creation because it's sacred, including our bodies, right? It's all sacred. So we should not just be good stewards of things that we use, like creation something to be used. It's a mystery to be lived, right? And yes, of course we use parts of nature um, for our, our, you know, food and whatnot, but we should be looking at it with God's eyes, you know, and we're made in the image of God. So it's, it's so much more than just stewards. Um, the one thing about John Paul II also with his adequate anthropology is his personalistic norm. So this is in love and responsibility where he says, well, what have we been missing in, in the, these not inadequate anthropologies? Well, certainly the body, that the body is part of the person. It's not something separate. I am my body. But then human persons, body and soul, cannot be used. Yeah. We can never use a human being. So what does that mean? We cannot harm, use, enslave, manufacture, or manipulate human beings. And the only appropriate response to the human person is love, including our enemies. Yes, Jesus said, love your enemy. Yeah. And then, then you have to know what the true nature of love is, to not a false compassion or a false love. But that that really shored up a lot of things because, as he said, um, he wrote one of the Vatican II documents, Gaudium et Spes, and that's why he quotes it all the time. Yeah. He said, um, like, only the human person was made for itself and for God. Whereas, can we like use animals for their eggs, like chickens for their eggs and, and for their meat and everything? Yes, we should treat them very well because these are sentient beings. They should have a good life before we, and, and if we have to, if we're out hunting, we should do it humanely, etc. You know, I think the Native Americans had it right. You, you only take what you need and you, you acknowledge this isn't a stone. This isn't an inanimate object. This is a, an animal that's giving it its life for my life, right? 
So, um, but human beings can never be used. So when we use our bodies sexually in a bad way, we're using our bodies and we're using each other. Even if we agree to mutually use each other, it's not okay. You can't do that to human dignity. You can't do that to the image of God. Right. So the personalistic norm is so foundational. Yeah. Uh, And this is a foundation that you can build on by going and taking this summer course, this uh, this certificate course with Sister Helena Burns. It's being put on by Sacred Heart College in Ontario, but it is, uh, it's made available online. You can find out more information about it by going to hellburns.com, Sister Helena's blog. Uh, Sister Helena, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. Thanks for having me. If you missed any part of this conversation with Sister Helena Burns or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. We also have, uh, gosh, about 20 minutes of extra conversation available to those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon supporters help keep us on the air and you can learn more about it by going to OutsideTheWalls.com and clicking that Patreon link in the top right-hand corner of the page. Now, let's turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of tradition and church teaching. Find out more by going to Verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes from the book of Romans, chapter 8. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are as nothing compared with the glory to be revealed for us. For creation awaits with eager expectation the revelation of the children of God. For creation was made subject to futility, not of its own accord, but because of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself would be set free from slavery to corruption and share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that all creation is groaning in labor pains, even until now. And not only that, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also groan within ourselves as we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that sees for itself is not hope, for who hopes for what one sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, We wait with endurance. In the same way, the Spirit, too, comes to the aid of our weakness. For we do not know how we ought to pray, but the Spirit itself intercedes with inexpressible groanings. The one who searches hearts knows what is the intention of the Spirit, because it intercedes for the holy ones according to God's will. We know that all things work for good for those who love God who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but handed him over for us all, how will he not also give us everything else along with him? Who brings a charge against God's chosen ones? Is it God who acquits us? Who will condemn? 
It is Christ Jesus who died, rather was raised, and also is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. What will separate us from the love of Christ? Will anguish or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being slain all day. We are looked upon as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we conquer overwhelmingly through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor present things, nor future things, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That reading comes from the book of Romans chapter 8, and there's a couple of things in there that relate to our conversation today. The first is that the body is important, right? There is the redemption of our bodies, which is our adoption as sons of God the Father. So this is a big deal. God is coming not to replace the earth or to replace our bodies, but to redeem all of creation, including our bodies, the physical matters. But the other connection is to the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, because his love for us is so great that he gave himself up for us. But beyond that, it's so strong that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So we turn to him and we call to him and we ask for his intercession, even in the midst of suffering, which is how this whole passage started. This suffering is nothing compared to the glory that's coming, and it allows us to hope with endurance because we know that he loves us, that his sacred heart yearns to give us his nature, to give us virtue, and to draw us deeply into that redemption that he has purchased for us. Our reading from Church History Today comes from a beautiful prayer embedded in this sermon by St. Ephraim Deacon. And it really kind of sheds light on this connection between the divine love of God, uh, our destiny as, as, uh, as Christians, and also the importance of the body. Lord, shed upon our darkened souls the brilliant light of your wisdom, so that we may be enlightened and serve you with renewed purity. Sunrise marks the hour for men to begin their toil. But in our souls, Lord, prepare a dwelling for the day that will never end. Grant that we may come to know the risen life and that nothing may distract us from the delights you offer. Through our unremitting zeal for you, Lord, set upon us the sign of your day that is not measured by the sun. In your sacrament, we daily embrace you and receive you into our bodies. Make us worthy to experience the resurrection for which we hope. We have had your treasure hidden within us ever since we received baptismal grace. It grows ever richer at your sacramental table. Teach us to find our joy in your favor. Lord, we have within us your memorial, received at your spiritual table. Let us possess it in its full reality when all things shall be made new. We glimpse the beauty that is laid up for us when we gaze upon the spiritual beauty your immortal will now creates within our mortal selves. Savior, 
Your crucifixion marked the end of your mortal life. Teach us to crucify ourselves and make way for our life in the Spirit. May your resurrection, Jesus, bring true greatness to our spiritual self, and may your sacraments be the mirror wherein we may know that self. Savior, your divine plan for the world is a mirror for the spiritual world. Teach us to walk in that world as spiritual men. Lord, do not deprive our souls of the spiritual vision of you, nor our bodies of your warmth and sweetness. The mortality lurking in our bodies spreads corruption through us. May the spiritual waters of your love cleanse the effects of mortality from our hearts. Grant, Lord, that we may hasten to our true city and, like Moses on the mountaintop, possess it now in vision. That reading, that prayer, a beautiful prayer, comes from a homily by St. Ephraim. Here, I, I love this prayer because it highlights the importance of the spiritual life and its connection to our bodies, this sacramental life that we live as we take in these physical means of grace that we receive through baptism in the Eucharist, and we truly receive it in our bodies, and yet it doesn't just nourish our bodies. It does nourish and purify and cleanse and provide growth to our soul. We're neither spirit nor are we body. We are both spirit and body. And he comes uh, not just to minister to our souls and our spirits, but also, also to give strength to our mortal bodies. Remember, every day when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we ask that he will provide for our physical needs as well as our spiritual needs. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses, right? Um, yes, there is some symbolism there that points to the Eucharist, but it's not an either-or that we are as we come and approach the Lord in the Lord's Prayer. As we come and we ask God to provide for us, we are asking for our physical needs to be met as well. We aren't a body with a soul, and neither are we a soul with a body, but we are unified people, body and soul, made in the image and likeness of God, therefore carrying incomparable dignity because of God's image in us. Well, we're just about out of time today, but I want to encourage you to come over to social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls, because one of the most important things we can do for one another, specifically as we have been separated uh, in the midst of this pandemic, is to be there for one another and to lift up one another in prayer. So if you have something that you need someone to pray with you about, come over. Put it on social media. If you're uncomfortable doing that, put it in a direct message so that we can be praying with you and for you by name and by intention. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show was brought to you by Paige and uh, and Kent Keithley and all those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click the Patreon link to learn more. Until next week, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. All things are passing, but God is unchanging. Patience obtains all things. Who has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. 